Welcome to 20 Not Something, the podcast for 20-somethings who haven't quite figured out what their something is yet. Each week, I'll be speaking to a different guest about their experiences of this messy decade to reassure you that everything turns out all right in the end. Because doing something in your 20s can actually mean doing anything that makes you happy. Today, I am joined by author, journalist and public speaker, Ella Dove. Ella's early 20s saw her constantly chasing highs. She was a social butterfly with dreams of spreading her wings in the journalist world. The first few years of the decade were spent pursuing her career while juggling a hectic social life, attending multiple press events, eating and drinking out frequently, and trying to find her flow in the fast-paced environment. It was a whirlwind few years, and the concept of slowing down was totally alien to her. However, age 25, Ella experienced a traumatic freak accident which would change her life forever. While out on a run with her sister, she tripped and fell, landing awkwardly on her right leg. What she thought was just a broken leg then transpired to be something far more severe. After three days in intensive care, Ella's right leg had to be amputated below the knee. In one moment, everything seemed to change, and Ella felt the life she had so carefully planned out for herself suddenly collapse around her. The following years of recovery were mentally and physically draining. Accepting the new challenges of being an amputee paired with rigorous rehabilitation practices and therapy forced Ella to listen to her body and not berate herself for lacking productivity. It was a long road, but Ella was determined to walk it, and she did just that. Ella is now a public speaker, a trustee for the Limbless Association, and published her debut novel, Five Steps to Happy, while still working as a journalist. She's a true inspiration and provides help, comfort, and reassurance to those suffering while using her journalistic talents to change the narrative around disability in the media. In her own reassuring and moving words, there is hope after trauma, there is light through the dark, it will get better. Ella Dava, thank you for being here. Welcome to 20 Not Something. It's lovely to be here. What a lovely intro as well. Oh, good. I'm glad. I wanted to pick up on how much of a socialite you said you were, because I feel like I can totally relate to that. Um, That feeling of constantly needing to be busy all the time. Were you literally going at like 100 miles an hour? Yeah, I mean, it's just so difficult. I think particularly when you live in a big city like London, it's difficult to say no to things. Um, You sort of feel this pressure that you always have to be out and about, um, you know, making the most of the city um, in sort of every every single way. So, yeah, I mean, I was barely, barely at home. Like, I can't tell you when I would sort of cook a meal for myself in my flat. Like, it was just very sort of grab and go running around. Um, And I think my job as a journalist probably didn't help that because I was obviously invited to a lot of lovely things. And so I just was like, yeah, great. And I was a real kind of yes person um, and still didn't really look after myself, I guess. I can so relate to that I feel like 2021 was my year of yes especially after lockdown when we couldn't do anything and so that power was taken away from us so then last year I was like yes I'm going to say yes to everything and then did just that like what you said I was I can't remember the last time I actually like spent a night in and looked after myself and it is so important because we forget that actually saying no is sometimes where a lot of the power can come from Mm, definitely yeah um so I think what so many people find is like the the pressure of having to do something or be someone or have something to say. And I kind of got the sense in your note that like you were just striving for, you wanted to do everything, right? Like pursue the career mm-hmm. and do the social life. So why do you think that feeling is so prevalent, especially in our early 20s? 
I think it's that sense of freedom. I think when I first moved to London, it was 2014. Um, I was in my early 20s and I thought the world is my oyster. And therefore, there was a certain pressure to grab that with both hands um, because you've kind of tasted freedom and you've tasted adulthood, I guess. Um, So it's sort of your first foray into adult life, I suppose. And you want to kind of be as adult as possible um and obviously you know that that sort of comes with jumping at opportunities and trying to climb the career ladder and you know um also being really extracurricular you know I remember I kind of as well as sort of joining the local pool and going to like gym classes and stuff I was also keen to join a choir which actually I'm still part of so I joined a community choir Um, and then you know before I knew it sort of three nights of my week were taken up and that's not factoring in meeting up with friends in the evenings as well so Mm. it kind of then very quickly your week just gets away from you but I think it's definitely to do with sort of that young burst of energy that we often have in our early 20s and how we kind of feel like this is it this is life let's let's go out and live it you know yeah and it almost feels like I don't know about you but like like a time pressure it's like oh I'm only young now and I feel like I have to achieve things to like when I'm young and do it all when actually Mm. you forget that I mean touch wood you should hopefully have a lot more time than that um so yeah it's a difficult balance Mm. to strike I think Um, Yeah, yeah. Thinking back to 2016 then, I mean, I'm sure you've spoken about this. I mean, I know you have because I've listened to your TED Talks and and podcasts and things about about what happened to you. Um, But for the benefit of our listeners, I wondered if it would be okay for you to take us back there and talk about that day and um, how everything transpired and and, and what, what happened really. Yeah, of course. So yeah, it was 2016. It was a May bank holiday weekend. I remember this so, so vividly because bank holiday, you know, packed full of plans as per my normal diary. Um, So uh, I went on a run with my sister. Um, I should say here, I'm not sporty at all. I am absolutely not the sporty member of my family. It's my sister. Um, So she was training for a 10K. So I said, oh, I'll come with you. Um, You know, why not? It'll be good for me. Um, so Sunday morning, off we went, pulled on our trainers, um, didn't take a phone with us. We just shoved our keys sort of like down our sports bras. Um, off we went. And um, we only went out for sort of half an hour. Um, but on the way back, we were literally probably about five minutes away from the flat, um, running along a canal path um, near our home in East London. And I tripped over. Um, it was a flat path. I didn't trip over anything in particular. Uh, just one of those sort of occasions, as I'm sure we've all done, where you trip over your own feet. Um, but this time, as soon as I landed, I knew that I'd done something bad because I do. I am fairly clumsy. Um, I've fallen over a fair amount in my time. But this time, I knew I couldn't get up. So I knew straight away that I'd done something to my right knee and that I couldn't get up. Um, and my leg looked like it was at quite a weird angle and I'd never actually broken a bone before so I had no idea really what that pain of breaking a bone felt like um well apart from when I shut my finger in a door at university once my little <laughs> finger um oh. obviously obviously it was very different to that um so yeah I knew I was in I mean excruciating pain but I kind of just I just sort of just assumed that I'd broken my leg and that, you know, that's fine, get an ambulance. So I was weirdly calm at this point. Um, but of course, as I mentioned, we hadn't taken our phones with us. So we had no way of phoning an ambulance. 
Um, so we had to wait for somebody to come along. Um, and a man did come along the canal path. Obviously, it was quite early bank holiday weekend. So, you know, there weren't that many people around. Um, but this man came along and he phoned an ambulance for us. Um, but then he hung up and said he had to go. He had a train to catch. And so we were just like, I mean, stunned, I guess. Like, I, I obviously couldn't get up. By this point, I was sort of feeling a bit nauseous and, you know, the pain was awful and I couldn't get up. And this man just said, oh, I'm sorry, I've got to go. I mean, to this day, I don't know what was so important, but we'll get onto that later because that did form the basis for my novel. Um, but he, so he left us there um, on the canal path and off he went. Obviously, I didn't know whether this ambulance was coming. I didn't know whether, you know, by hanging up, the ambulance could no longer track his phone. I I didn't really know anything. So we had to wait for somebody else to come along, um, which felt like a long time later. It was probably only about 15 minutes. But when you're in that state of trauma, your brain sort of blocks things out. So I have no concept of time, really. It just felt Mm -hmm. like a very, very long time. Um, And then this other girl came along and she phoned an ambulance and she stayed with us and she waited on the main road and flagged down the ambulance for us. Um, So I was taken to hospital um, and I was told that in the ambulance, I was on the maximum amount of morphine that they had in the ambulance. But again, I didn't really clock what that meant or, you know, how serious that meant my injury was. I probably because of the morphine, I was just kind of, I remember laughing and joking with the ambulance men and kind of like telling them about my life and telling them that that night I had a first date planned. Um, You know, that all these sort of things that I I just at that point was in a bit of denial, didn't really realise how my life would sort of changed so dramatically um Mm. we managed to pull up outside the flat for my sister to go and get our phone so that she could tell our parents what was going on um and we got to hospital and my foot was my right foot was a very funny color it had kind of gone mottled and almost sort of plastic looking um so I was rushed I was rushed straight to hospital straight to theater um for a 12-hour operation which would have been the first of many many operations operations um and obviously in that time my parents were racing up from where they live in Kent um racing up the motorway to get to us my poor sister was sitting there on her own um so um it was it wasn't until um I had two had three operations actually to try and restart the blood supply over the next few days um and I was in intensive care and it wasn't until um the third operation that the surgeon said to me, it's becoming dangerous now. It's actually becoming life-threatening because you're at risk of developing sepsis um, and, you know, kind of getting infection. So basically there's only one option left and that's to amputate your right leg below the knee. So, yeah, a huge thing to have to hear at the age of 25. That is... I can't even imagine what that must have been like to go through. I mean, words probably can't even describe it. But as you said, at 25, when you've got your whole, like you feel like you're just sort of getting started, really, don't you? Um, what mm. what was going through your head when he said the word amputation? Like what? I think that the word had been banded around a bit before, but probably because they in hospital always have to tell you when you go into surgery what could be 
you know, what could be the worst outcome. Um, and you have to sign a form before each surgery. So they say, you know, obviously worst case death and you, you think, yeah, whatever, like <laughs> you're almost a bit blase. Well, I was because I just had no, I thought, no, I'm 25. That's not going to happen. Mm. You know, I'm healthy. I'm, um, so I'd heard the word amputation mentioned before, but I think I always just assumed that that was much like saying you could die. I think that I, I equated it to that. So it was like, oh, that won't happen. Um, so then when it actually did come to it and the surgeon sat down and, and said, you know, there's only one option. Um, weirdly, my first response was, I don't often say this, but my first response was I laughed. And that is really, really weird to think about. Probably also, I was on a lot of drugs by this point, you know, so I wasn't fully in control of myself. Um, And, um, you know, I remember the surgeon saying to me, this isn't a laughing matter. Do you understand what I'm saying? And me sort of saying, oh, yeah. And then it sort of dawned on me. I mean, maybe it was a shock reaction, that laughter. Um, So then it kind of really dawned on me. But I wasn't really in a headspace um, to be able to process it because at that point all I could think about was the pain you know the pain continued despite having three operations to try to restart the blood supply essentially like my blood couldn't get to my foot or not enough of it could get to my foot for for it to be a good circulation so mm. you know it was the pain of that is I can't even I, I mean I can't my brain has blocked out how bad that was but I can't even begin to describe how much agony I was in So that was all I could think about. And I think when you're in extreme pain like that, you can't see past that. So I, you know, I couldn't really even sort of begin to contemplate the fact that I was about to have an amputation. Um, Mm. But I mean, I do have very specific memories of being wheeled down to um, the anaesthetist room before going into theatre and kind of signing the form um, consenting to the amputation and also them drawing um, an arrow on my right leg to show which one like, which one to amputate and you know I even then I remember jokingly being like oh don't draw it on the wrong leg and it's like why I don't even know how I had that in me to kind mm. of have a sense of humor at that point but um yeah and then I kind of remember looking at my right foot for the last time as well and the seeing that I I'd painted my toenails red it's like a really small memory but I painted mm. my toenails red um you know, I was obviously going on this first date that night and kind of I was getting all ready for it. And like, it just reminded me of that. And then suddenly like these red toenails on this foot that no longer really resembled my foot. It looked like plastic, as I said, like it looked almost like a doll's foot. It was very, very weird. Um, And just thinking this is the last time I'm going to see my right foot when I wake up, this isn't going to be here that was like a huge, a huge thing to kind of, and that's, that's something that's, you know, five years on has stayed with me, that image. So that's obviously a really kind of key point um, in my memories. Well, I remember you saying, um, I don't know if you wrote it in the book or if it's something you've, you've written about since, but um, it's losing a limb is like a form of, of grief because you're losing a part of yourself. And I mm. thought about that and I was like, gosh, I just, like, I think we all just so take for granted, like the fingers on our hands and, you know, the thought of losing a limb. And so suddenly as well, I think that's what gets me about this is that like that could have happened to absolutely anyone. And I'm I'm curious to ask you whether I think in life we can always get caught up in the what ifs and the why me's 
um, in terms of, you know, had you been in a different place at a different time, would it have happened? Would you still have had your leg? And I think we can all go into, you know, rabbit holes about, about certain situations like that and overplay them in our heads. And I'm curious as to how you dealt with those feelings and those impulses after the event and how you sort of came to terms with it. Mm, yeah, I mean, there was a there was definitely a lot of why me at the beginning. Um, I think it, it is the stage of grief. Um, you know, I kind of, as I said, I was in denial right up until the operation. So that was almost like I'd started that grieving process before it had even happened. Um, and then, yeah, I, I kind of, uh, for a long time, I was, the thing that I was dwelling on more than anything actually was, um, what if that man had stayed and what if the ambulance had come quicker would it have made any difference you know would this be the outcome um I've since found out that it it probably would have still been the outcome because when the blood supply gets cut off that's instant so you know unless the ambulance had been there right outside immediately after I fell the chances are it would have still ended up like this so I could kind of console myself a little bit with that mm. um but yeah, you do think, why me? And, you know, a, a lot of people have said things like, oh, I wouldn't have been able to cope with that if that was me. And you think, well, you know, until this happened to me, I wouldn't have thought that I would be able to cope with it either. But the fact is that it's happened and you can either completely fall to pieces or you can slowly, and I'm not saying this is easy, but slowly and gradually try to piece yourself back together again, um, physically and mentally. So, yeah, it's it's one of those things that I kind of, the more I reflect on it, the more I think, God, it's amazing that I did have that sort of um, power within me to to overcome that because it's so easy. I mean, I speak to a lot of amputees now. I do kind of peer-to-peer support um, for amputees at the beginning of their journey. Um, and it's it's so easy to to collapse you know it's so easy to completely crumble because the fact is your your world as you know it has crumbled around you and your life Mm. has changed dramatically in a short space of time so it's it is so easy to sort of succumb to that um but I think everyone's everyone's journey through trauma is different and everyone kind of has their own navigates through it in a different way I guess um so for me it was kind of those initial moments of what if were um helped by well firstly having a very close family my family were coming to my mum came every single day apart from one day I was in hospital for six weeks um you know having having that fam family network is such a huge huge thing um which obviously can't be underestimated and then also just having a kind of sense of determination you know I think because I was the way I was I was a social butter fly I was very determined very ambitious in my career um you know always wanted to get the most out of life and kind of really one of those life is for living people that Mm. really that mentality really really helped me I think um Mm. so I was I, I was lucky that I already had that power with within me I guess totally yeah for sure I mean it reminds me of actually a quote in in your book that the character Dougie says to Heidi. So for those who haven't read the book, it's, it is a fictional, it's a fictional book. The main character is called Heidi, but the accident is based on, on your story. Yeah. So, and, yeah. and Dougie says in it, when, when the accident happens to Heidi, he says, it's shit, it's unfair. And to be honest, you're entitled to react however you bloody well want. And I think that 
to be able to accept the way that you feel, I think is the first stage of, of getting through it. Because when you go through something like that, you're feeling so many emotions at the same time. And then to be told like, you have to get out of it or do it or try and do something differently, like to just be able to accept that, okay, this is a shit situation, but this is how I'm going to deal with it. Yeah, no, it's, and, and it's, it's definitely a sort of one day at a time thing. You know, that, that cliche phrase one day at a time is there for a reason. And it is kind of, that was exactly what it was like, you know, in hospital, there were days where perhaps I'd have a really good day of physio and, um, you know, I'd, I'd be able to sit up or get into a wheelchair myself for the first time. And there were milestones that I achieved that made me feel like, okay, I can do this. Then there were days where, you know, there was one particular incident where I got um, moved beds in the hospital. Obviously, they have to shuffle around beds when new patients come in. Um, And I did have a room of my own. I was very lucky. I was in a side room. But then there was one day where I got moved onto a main ward with five other patients. And it was it was a small thing. When I say it now, it feels like, oh, whatever, you know, that's just what happens in hospital. But that that side room for sort of two or three weeks was had become my space and to be moved out of it and then suddenly be in this big bay with nothing but a curtain around me for privacy and loads of other patients around was so big. And it made me just completely collapse. Um, I had a day I, I was moved at I think it was like sort of 10 p.m. at night and I, the next say I didn't want anybody I said to the nurses keep the curtains drawn around me like I don't want to see anyone I don't want to talk to anyone I was a bit rude actually to be honest but I kind of you know I didn't want to talk to any of the doctors and nurses um and I think because because I normally am quite a sort of polite and very chatty and friendly person, they were like, oh, gosh, OK, she's really struggling to be mm. reacting like this. Um, mm. And, you know, I just could not stop crying. It was really awful. And, you know, then the next day I felt a lot better and I can't really explain why that was, but it was very much just peaks and troughs. Um, and that did continue for a really, really long time. Even after leaving hospital, I had days where I just was really struggling. Um, you know, they told me actually going home is harder than being in hospital. And I didn't believe it at the time because I thought, how can it be? I just want to get out of here. I just want to go home. But then when I went home, I went back to my parents' house to be looked after by them and nothing was the same. You know, mm. I couldn't get up the stairs, for example. I had to sit on my bottom and go like on my bottom one step at a time I couldn't you know all these things like if I needed like to move from the sofa to like I don't know go to the loo I'd either have to hop on crutches uh, which was very precarious or I'd have to try and get into a wheelchair but then my wheelchair didn't fit through some of the doorways in the house like all these things where it was just like suddenly the home like my childhood home was Mm -hmm. full of obstacles and obviously that's like huge because you that's the place that you think is your sanctuary but actually it suddenly presents all these new challenges. It's it, yeah, it's very bizarre. Yeah, that must have been so difficult. Did did you um, get therapy afterwards? Was that something that was available? Yeah, yeah, I I did. Fortunately, um, I was very lucky to have therapy through the NHS um, because. Um, throughout the country there are these uh sort of prosthetic they're called long-term condition centers and they're they're prosthetic centers essentially where amputees go to get their new prosthetic 
prosthetic legs and you know to have outpatient physio and things like that um and quite a lot of these centers have inbuilt psychological support so um the psychological therapists who are um specialists in amputation um so i it was quite interesting because for about a year after the accident i didn't want to know about therapy um i'd never had it before i kind of just wrote it off almost um and i remember having this multidisciplinary meeting with all the team at, at the prosthetic center um so the prosthetist was there the doctor was there the physio the the psychological therapist and i remember her coming up to me and saying oh you know i'm kim i'm the therapist here let me know if you want to talk and i was almost again slightly rude to her and said oh no no i don't need i don't need psychological help i'm not you know i think i actually said i'm not the sort of person to need therapy mm. which is obviously completely ridiculous looking back um and so I sort of brushed her off and she said okay well let me know if you change your mind and then about a year later I was really struggling um it was almost like I at this point I had a prosthetic leg I was walking I'd overcome all the physical hurdles and it was like okay now the psychological stuff hit me it was like I was so focused on the physical recovery that I sort of neglected the mental side of it mm-hmm. um so I rang her up and I said oh you know hi it's Ella Dove here um you know I think I might need to have a chat with you and she said I wondered when you'd be back <laughs> <laughs> so I think you know this is obviously a common thing people kind of thinking no don't need that and then a year or however long later down the line it hits them um so then I I did go and see her slightly sheepishly um, and said, I'm, I, I am sorry that I was like that and I was so abrupt. And she said, no, it's normal because people often who have a strong family network in the early days, their family network is their psychological support. So mm-hmm. they don't need an outside professional because they're going, they are, they're still sort of processing it, but they're processing it through talking to their family. But of course, there are some elements that you can't talk to your family or you don't, you don't feel like you are comfortable talking to your family. You know, there were some very mm-hmm. dark thoughts I had too that I wouldn't have wanted to disclose to my family. Um, so yeah, so then I had kind of, um, well, I think it went on for six months and then I, I still occasionally see her um, and she doesn't work there anymore, but I still see her because she's the person that has kind of been with me on my journey. Um, so yeah, still occasionally, like during the pandemic, we had a couple of chats when I was struggling and it's, mm. it's yeah, I mean, it's been so, so helpful and it really just, I feel like everyone should have therapy. It really just helps you to understand yourself better. It's Yeah, it's great. Totally, totally. And I feel like, People only go and get it when they are in dire need of it. And um, um, a therapist I had once told me, like, you should, if you can, I mean, obviously it's it's available to different people in different ways, but if you can, it's sort of like going for a checkup. Like you might not think that you need it and it's always worse to leave it until you really need it, you know, rather than sort of maintaining a steady balance. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 There is such, such a taboo around it. And I think, you know, I wouldn't have accessed it probably had I not had this life changing injury, but now I really do know, I feel like I've grown up a lot. Um, you know, I was kind of from, from my early twenties to I'm now 30, but throughout my late twenties, I really did grow up so much. Mm. And I kind of not only grew up, but understood myself a lot better and understood 
basically understood how my own mind works um and therefore how I tick as a person and then that helps other things to fall into place like you know I've been with my boyfriend for three years and before that I'd not been able to I'd not really had a proper relationship I'd not really been able to kind of find the right person but I think I really feel like part of that was because I didn't fully understand myself so Mm. it's it's interesting how other things then fall into place yeah do you think that the accident I mean helped you understand who you were in a more profound way yeah absolutely Mm. yeah definitely because I was tested to the limit that you know I hope that the majority of people will never be tested to and it's the same as kind of any any major life event when you think oh gosh I don't know if I can do this but then when you come out the other side and when you do do it it makes you realize that you actually are stronger than you thought was possible and more capable than you thought was possible and you can kind of it gives you a new sense of self-worth and also of confidence because it makes you think yeah I can do this you know Mm. and now when there are hard times at work for example like if I have a bad day at work it gives me a sense of perspective because I think okay well I'm having a bad day that's gone wrong but I've overcome bigger things than this. I can do this. And so it does kind of give me that sense of perspective that I didn't have before. Absolutely. Yeah, I bet. Speaking of um, your boyfriend, how did you find going back to dating and like just trying to go? Well, actually, that's a question. Did you try to go back to your normal life or did you actually say, no, this is going to be my new life? And within that, how was the whole dating thing going Mm, yeah I think I did try to be I tried to be the person I was before to an extent uh because so an an example is that when I was in hospital um I obviously a lot of people wanted to come and see me um in the first couple of weeks I didn't want to see anyone apart from my family um and actually one really close friend who is a nurse and I knew that she would get it because she wouldn't be phased by coming into a hospital and you know but apart from that I just did not want to see any of my friends and they were all texting me and I had to give my sister my phone and she had to message everybody like she sent like a one like a huge group message explaining what had happened to everyone which obviously like is a bit of a clunky way of doing it but I just didn't have the capacity to be Mm. you know back and forth messaging people um and then when I felt a bit better sort of two weeks in um after the amputation I said to my sister can you can you get me my diary from home and she brought my diary in and we sat there together and we basically looked at all the people that had said they wanted to come and see me and then we booked them in that was kind of an example of of me trying to be the person I was before trying to socialize as much as I could from my hospital bed I mean I did exhaust myself at times and like there were times where we had to cancel people because I just booked into too many people and Mm. I'd gone over and I forgot that I was actually still a patient in hospital on loads of drugs in loads of pain who needed to sleep a lot you know so (laughs) I kind of would forget about it but I tried I tried to do that from an early sort of stage um and then, you know, after hospital, um, I so I so I was in hospital for six weeks and then I went back to my parents' house in Kent for four months. So I was in a wheelchair. I didn't have a prosthetic leg for the first sort of six months um, because I had to wait. My, my bones were so badly damaged. My knee had to be completely rebuilt. And so I couldn't put any weight on it for a long time. Um, and then after that, I went to an amputee rehabilitation center for five weeks, which is like a sort of 
um, inpatient unit where I went to one in Lambeth in London. There's only 12 beds in it. And you stay there for five weeks or six weeks and you have intensive physiotherapy twice a day. A prosthetist builds you your first leg. You can have psychological therapy. Obviously, I said no because, you know, I was I was having that mental block at the time. Um, you have occupational therapy. You have everything. You practice, like, I practiced my commute to work. I went on the tube with the occupational therapist and went wow. to my office. Um, you know, you, you kind of, it's very much like, real life and you're 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 allowed to go out in the evening um so quite often I would say to like friends or oh, why don't you come pick me up and we'll go out for dinner to a local restaurant so I did quite a lot of that then as well mm. so that was also I guess me trying to socialize um but as time went on I kind of realized what my limits were and you know where I had to kind of give myself time to recover and relax as well as socialize yeah it must have been such a like a life lesson in terms of just learning how to do that balance because I don't think many people do know how to balance socializing work yourself yeah 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 and I think and I think the other thing is you know you asked about dating and I think that kind of played into understanding myself better as well you know I kind of as I mentioned once I learned how much I could socialize how much I had to relax and give myself time and obviously that's an ongoing process I still don't relax enough I will say that um but um you know once I'd sort of learned that I could I could sort of learn how many for example how many like dates I could do you know in a, in a week or two weeks and because that's a really really tiring process as well online dating you're kind of meeting someone for the first time you know I found myself telling the same stories I, I just got very bored actually mm. if I'm honest and just like oh gosh I can't like go through this again <laughs> another first meeting um but so I could only do so many of them you know mm. a week and then there, there was one week where I had three no it was three weeks where each week I had a first date so over three weeks there were three first dates and that was probably like the most I could manage um and then I I kind of just none of them none of them worked out by the way but I kind of just was like I need a bit of a break after that um and then when I eventually um when I eventually kind of agreed to meet George my now boyfriend um I'd been on so many first dates and I was just a bit disillusioned and I actually remember having therapy and saying oh there's this guy like who's messaged me on hinge and he wants to meet me but I just don't know if I can be bothered to go through this again like I just I'm really just a bit sick of it all um and you know Kim my therapist asked me a bit more about him and then she said well he sounds really nice why don't you you know, why don't you go for it? And obviously when I did meet up with him, I realized that, yeah, he was really nice, but Mm. it's funny, isn't it? How these things kind of just happen. I could have so easily just been like, oh, can't be bothered to do this. again. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I literally hear you. And that's the thing that gets me with online dating as well. It's like such a, a minute possibility of chance of two people being in the same headspace, free at the same time, who are both into each other. Like I was talking to a friend the other day at the pub and I was like, it's probably like one in 20 people you match with, you would probably go on a date with. And that, and, and everyone says it's a numbers game, but that is exhausting. And if you're fully mm-hmm. like going in it for the dating game and you want to get a boyfriend or girlfriend, that, that is, that's bad odds. <laughs> 
It is. It is. Yeah. It's exhausting, particularly when you've also got the added thing of when do I tell them that I'm an amputee? It's like an added, an added thing. And, you know, once I kind of would start talking about it, obviously it's such a huge thing that it dominated the whole conversation. So then I'd go home and I'd be like, well, I don't know anything about this person. You know, Mm -hmm. they know my whole life story and my whole journey. And I don't really know much about them at all um Mm. so that was really hard to navigate as well yeah I can imagine did you tend to leave it until later on or would you always say on the first date like how did you navigate it uh it it was a mixture really I didn't always tell them um so Mm. I've got a leg which is a realistic prosthetic leg um it's made out of high definition silicon and it looks like a real leg it was made private I had to say do a lot of crowdfunding to buy it because it's a private leg but um it was kind of made to match my other leg so they do color match it kind of like with makeup when they're trying to find you the right foundation um they took loads of photos of my good leg and kind of color matched it and then they made this leg and it's honestly it's a piece of art it's amazing and it the cover is made by they have no sort of medical background they're they're artists so it was made by this woman who her background is in sculpture um so that's just how that's how intricate and amazing they are um so you would not know if I walked in wearing that you wouldn't know I was an amputee it's quite heavy and it's not the easiest to walk in um because the foot is fixed into one position um but it's got a button on the ankle that you can press to adjust the foot height so it means I could wear high heels with it it's very cool um so I would wear that on dates quite often because then I thought well at least I'm giving myself the opportunity to present myself as Ella not as Ella who is also an amputee you know Mm. and it gives them the chance to work out if they like me as a person and then I can say by the way just so you know um Oh, interestingly with George, I actually did say to him um, that I, I, I told him I was an amputee just before we agreed to meet. I said, oh, just mm. so you know. Um, and he obviously just replied being like, oh, okay, no, yeah, great. Like, you know, I can't remember exactly what he said. I think he said something like it doesn't doesn't worry me at all, which was lovely because there were mm. people that stopped, to- stopped talking to me after I told them I was an amputee. No way. Which is pretty shocking yeah and so we met up and I wore I wore the realistic leg and he he said he since said to me that he was sitting there thinking I'm sure she told me that she was an amputee but yeah obviously that's how realistic it is um so it's quite quite funny really but he didn't bring that up until like a few dates later because I think the next one I wore the leg that I wear every day which is very obviously a prosthetic leg it's got Mm. a sort of mini blade on the bottom of it and it's obviously not a real leg and uh, he probably saw that and was like what (laughs) (laughs) she had two legs last time we met (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh brilliant well before we move on to play millennial Mindsweeper, i just wanted to ask you one more question um which is obviously that you you know you turned 30 last year and i think 30 has such a, a buzz around that word i don't know why because on this podcast we basically say that 30 is the new 25 um but did you experience any sort of shift when you left your 20s behind and like did it fill you with excitement or dread I was excited, you know. I mean, it was annoying because it was locked. It was lockdown, so that wasn't yeah. ideal for a thirtieth. Um, but yeah, I I was excited. I think, as I said, I'd grown up a lot. I was I was ready to leave the twenties behind. I was ready to 
be you know I I guess a proper adult (laughs) um in terms of you know not uh, kind of just having I guess it's not maybe not a proper adult it's like more well-rounded as a person so it's like understanding who you are um relishing a night in just as much as a night out and being able to kind of sort of navigate that balance a little bit better and also understanding Mm -hmm. that you know you can be ambitious but you don't have to be constantly you know nose to the grindstone you don't have to constant you don't have to berate yourself if you have as I've just had Christmas holidays where you've not done anything towards you know writing a new novel or starting a podcast or you know I I have this thing in me that's like I have to have all these extracurricular things away from my nine-to-five job but sometimes I have to have a word with myself and say like no it's okay that you've taken up cross-stitch and you've been watching tv cross-stitching for four hours that's fine you know that's allowed um it's therapeutic so therefore it's good for your mind um Okay. So yeah, I was I was ready for it and I feel like I'm I'm excited about my 30s. I think they're going to be good. Okay, so Millennial Minesweeper, this is the game where I read you out a couple of quotes and you just have to tell me whether you agree with them or not, slash if you like them. Um, these are all quite good ones, actually. I should have done a... Normally, I pick two quite nice ones and then one which I'm a bit like, mm. but we'll see what you think of them. So our first one is caring more about looking happy on social media than actually being happy in real life might just be the greatest mistake of our generation. Oh, okay. I mean, I think that's good. I think social media has a lot to answer for, doesn't it? I mean, we all know this. It really, really does. Um, How to kind of get it right is beyond me. Um, You know, you can kind of try and I, I've recently started trying to use my Instagram in a more positive way and kind of be a bit more well body positivity is one thing but also just kind of disability awareness and um sort of motivational mantras I do like a Monday mantra quite often um and I sometimes feel a bit disingenuous doing that because I think quotes sometimes particularly when you see them on social media can be a bit sort of like eye rolling like oh yeah, yeah sure like that's not for me um but they are I mean they are there they have their purpose and I think Mm. I'm obviously I'm an author I'm a journalist I'm a words person so Mm. I really resonate with them and I really like it when I see something on social media that kind of makes me stop in my tracks and think or you know look at life in a different way um so yeah no I like that one yeah definitely no I I like what you say about quotes as well because I'm exactly the same and I don't really know where I stand on it because if I see a quote on social media especially if it's something like I don't know living my best life or positive vibes and things like that I just as you say I eye roll but what I like about I mean the quotes that I find and like when we discuss quotes on this podcast is because like everyone has everyone responds to a quote differently and as you say they are words and words can be really powerful and some of the most profound moments I've had in the last couple of years have been because I've read something and I'm like oh I feel like that that's made me feel something um so yeah Mm. I guess it's like anything isn't it there are good there are good quotes and bad quotes (laughs) definitely yeah well let's see if this one's any good so our second one is to succeed in life you need three things a wishbone a backbone and a funny bone oh I love that one yeah big fan of that one yeah Reba I can't spell her surname McIntyre M-C-E-N-T-I-R-E 
Yeah. And I think, I mean, you know, we, we've spoken about like the, the wishbone thing sort of to me resonates with like ambition and determination and kind of hopes and dreams for the future. The backbone is the resilience, isn't it? And that's, you know, I, I think this is why it's resonated with me. And then the, obviously the funny bone, you know, I was making jokes just before mm. I lost my leg in hospital. So I think definitely those are three things that I carry with me. Definitely. That can go on your next Monday mantra. There you go. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much. I'll, I'll credit you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then our final one is, oh, I love this one. Okay. Have you seen um, Love on the Spectrum on Netflix? I, yeah, I have. Yes. Yeah. And maybe so, not all of them, but I've seen a few episodes. Yeah. It's so good. I'm, I watched mm. it all in over the Christmas holidays. Um, but this is from season two and Jaden says it and he says, the uncomfortable thing about hindsight is that it's only an asset after it's needed. Oh like, yeah. That's really good. Isn't it? So it's very like, po- yeah. Poetic. I would say. Yeah. I know. Right. And I no, think definitely. Like, when we talk about hindsight as well, I just, I'm such a sucker for hindsight and I always think things after they've happened and what I could have done differently or, but actually the way it happened is the way it was supposed to happen. And hindsight, I don't know, what is hindsight even for? Mm, I don't know. I think, I think for me, I try not to, I try not to look back too much. Um, and I try not to sort of, no, that's not true. I look back in terms of reflecting and nostalgia, but I try not to sort of think, oh, I wish I'd said that. Or, Mm. you know, often I think the the sort of everyday example is you kind of think of a comeback for something like days after (laughs) and you're like, oh, that would have been a really good thing to say back to that person, but it's too late now. Um, so I have that quite a lot, but I think that's kind of harmless because that's just, that's just life isn't it and it's more of a kind of it's more of a surface level thing that but um yeah I think I don't really know what what it's for to be honest I think it's maybe just I I guess it's part of being human and it's kind of part of the mechanics of our of our brain to think Mm. oh I could have done this and you know actually it reminds me of I don't know have you read the midnight library by Matt (gasps) Haig oh my gosh I am obsessed with that book yeah, so I it's a bit it. like that, isn't it? That, that, you know, in life, there are so many possibilities, uh, books that we could pick up, stories that we could live. And mm. and it's, I guess that maybe that's what hindsight is for. It's just a little reminder that, you know, our direction is our own and we can mm. choose to go in whatever, you know, take whatever path or pick up whatever book we want. For wow, sure. that was profound, wasn't it? It was, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so much for a Wednesday morning. No, but on the Matt Hay thing, like I found reading that book when I started it, I I was quite distant from it because I was like, I hate the idea that there are parallel universes and there are lives which I could be living because it makes me really sad because I've only got one. I don't know if that mm. makes sense, but actually reading it and I mean, I won't ruin the ending for anyone, but to realise that the life that you have is fine and good and it's the one that you chose there's so much power behind that I think Mm, I think so too and uh, to me also it's it's interesting that you kind of interpreted in that way because I can see totally why you say that but then also for me it's like the idea of limitless possibilities and like Mm. I think maybe rather than looking to the past and the lives I could have had it makes me think about what I'm going to choose in the future so yeah I think that's such a nice way of looking exciting at it. yeah oh 
gosh so philosophical thank you so much Ella thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been so lovely to chat to you um you're very welcome thanks for having me Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the 20 Not Something podcast. There is plenty more where that came from, so do hit subscribe to be the first to get notified of future episodes. It would also mean the world to me if you could please leave us a cheeky review on iTunes as that helps more people to find us. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Have a great week, whatever it is you're up to, and you will hear from us very soon.